So hello everybody, welcome to the July 2015 podcast. Great to have you along as always. In fact, looking at the stats for the podcast, it's very gratifying for me to see that there are so many people who now seem to be tuning in to listen. And uh, hopefully you're going to find what I have for you today of, uh, of interest as well. And I'm going to start by reflecting on um, Paul Daniels and Debbie McGee's um, latest live show, The Intimate Magic Show. Um, rather extraordinarily, uh, well, at least I thought it was extraordinary, um, he brought the show to Exeter. Now, Exeter only has two theatres. It has one up at the university, which seats about 500, and then there's a much smaller theatre, which seats just under 300, uh, which is called the Barnfield, which is in the centre of town. And it was this theatre that uh, Paul was appearing in. Uh, and I went along with a magician friend of mine, Paul Prager, and there was one or two other magicians uh, who live locally, went as well, plus, of course, a whole load of lay people. And um, it was fascinating to uh, to see Paul perform. I haven't seen him do a live show for quite a few years. And it was fun to, to watch him strut his stuff. And uh, what was uh, interesting about it was that um, he did a combination of new material, things which he... Um, and he we t- chatted to him afterwards, and he, he said, well, some of the things he's only done three or four times because the show is at the early part of its run. And uh, he was still so kind of feeling his way a little bit and would wanted to get them a bit slicker. Uh, you compare that to the smoothness with which he did some of his his classic signature pieces. He did the electric chair. He did the... Um, uh, the uh, chop cup and he also finished the act with um what i think is one of his strongest bits of magic the walnut in the egg which is in the lemon and of course on the inside of the walnut is a borrowed uh, banknote which has disappeared much earlier in in the act and when he was doing those uh, all the lines and the timing and everything was just completely second nature to him when he was doing, obviously, and this happens to all of us, of course, when you put in new material and you're trying to sort of get get the mechanics of it as well as the presentation kind of sorted out and and smooth. And it was quite noticeable, certainly to me as a performer. You see, yeah, he, he's, he wasn't quite as slick with that as he probably would have liked. The other thing that was very noticeable um, was that the lay people who came... Um, were really, really enthusiastic about Paul and Debbie. Uh, when he first came on, and there's no sort of warm-up act, of course, it's just an announcement and then the two of them come on, but the audience were virtually gave them a standing ovation from the moment they walked onto the stage, which when you consider that, um, that Paul doesn't do so much, if hardly any, in fact, proper TV, magic TV work anyway these days, although he may appear as a celebrity on various things, he doesn't perform that much. So um, the fact that the, the people sort of still valued him and rated him so highly, I thought was, was very interesting. Uh, and throughout the whole show, um, Paul was able to, and he's a very relaxed performer anyway. I mean, I think he's excellent the way he, he is relaxed than you as an audience, of course. You relax too. It's, it's part of the skill that he has. Um, but the whole audience was really behind him right from the word go and uh, thoroughly enjoyed everything that he had to uh, had to show them one thing that i noticed was his microphone uh, usage uh, i was very surprised that he didn't wear any sort of neck holder or clip um he was given the microphone presumably it's the house mic 
Uh, and it was on a, one of these sort of mic stands, the sort of ones that are adjustable, so you can bend them down halfway down the stem of the thing to change the angle. And on occasions, he put the microphone into that and spoke into it. But then, of course, as soon as he walked away to get something, his voice was his, the power of his voice was completely lost and he had to shout or speak up a lot more. And other times he took it off and he just popped it. Uh, and the way Terry, C- Terry Seabrook always used to just stick it in his top pocket, his outside jacket top pocket, which while I can see that that in an emergency, perhaps, or just very occasionally, that's a good way to go. I thought it was kind of surprising that he didn't actually wear something that he could keep the microphone in more securely um, and it would save him having to constantly move the microphone around. Anyway, that's just an observation. But the show was um, the show was great and um, we really enjoyed it and we enjoyed it uh, on two levels. I think as magicians, we enjoyed watching a master at work, especially when he was doing his uh, his core stuff. It was great to see that. And also we enjoyed it because the atmosphere in the theatre itself, as I said, was very supportive and very enthusiastic. And it's kind of nice to see magic being appreciated so well by the lay public. I wondered, actually, if the age demographic of the people going would tend to be older, because bearing in mind that Paul's real heyday on television was sort of 80s and 90s into early 2000s. But um, it wasn't. It was a very wide age range from from older, retired people right down to, there weren't many, but just one or two children. Um, but a lot of youngsters, in, when I say youngsters, I mean people in their 20s and 30s, um, they probably made up the bulk of the audience, which given the, the, the prevalence of sort of more hip magicians, such as Troy and Dynamo and people like that, it's nice to know that people of that age... Um, sort of um, early young adults can still find Paul entertaining and worth um, paying out to go and see. So um, if if the show comes near you, um, I don't know how big a tour he's doing, but um, if he, if, the, if it comes near you, I do go along and support him and, and watch it because uh, I think you'll find it's very entertaining. I've had a few examples um, recently of something that um, I've thought about before. And that is how you could define what a trick actually is. Now, they say beauty is in the eye of the beholder. And in some ways, um, a magic trick is not, although we go through the mechanics of actually making something happen through secret means that appears to the uninitiated, the lay people, as if it's something truly magical and amazing, But really, all the magic happens, the effect on how impressed the lay people are, happens in their heads. It depends where they're coming from. You know, if if there's a sort of lay people who've seen a lot of magic, so they become a bit more blasé to it, then you kind of need to up the ante a bit, don't you? You need to make sure that the magic, the strength of the magic that you're doing, is that much more fooling, is that much more impressive because these people have seen a lot before and you need to do more to make them go, wow. Um, But the opposite is also true. I mean, if you think about it, a lot of the things which are in our everyday lives, um, I don't know, let's say um, putting the TV on using your remote. Okay, now to us, we just pick up the remote and click the switch and then then the TV comes on. So change the channel and the rest of it. You don't think anything of it. And that is not in any way, shape or form, a magic trick. However, 
if you imagine somebody who has never seen a television before and has never seen a remote before and they see this big box and you pick up this this stick thing and you and you sort of point it at it and suddenly this this other box jumps into life and there's all these pictures on it you can see well wow that's amazing that could be viewed as a magic trick i mean it's making something that's fairly impossible in the realms of experience of somebody who's never seen a television before possible and so therefore you could say it's a kind of a magic trick now anybody who's got a remote and a tv will say well that's not a trick you're just using the remote but magic's like that isn't it when we do a trick that's all we're doing really we're taking something that is very ordinary to us perhaps and we're making it look like it's utterly amazing to the uninitiated and and i've had this brought home to me um uh, sort of in the last couple of months really there've been two or three occasions where um effects that um i've apparently had on a lay person were not intentional in terms of what was magic and what was not uh, and i'll describe them to you now that the first one was uh, my, in my walkabout coin box routine i start at the beginning by having an akito box examined and the lid and i bring out a coin i have that examined and um, i take back the box and i say to the spectator who's holding the coin does it look like the that that coin will fit in the box now i don't know why this is but because of the perhaps the distance between where i'm holding the box and where they are standing holding the coin even though it's not that far most lay people go uh, no it no it looks too big so uh, and and i didn't realize this because it i just know it fits but to them it didn't look like it did so then i would say oh okay um yeah well it could be a bit too big don't get it stuck see if you can fit it inside and then so they bring it right and they tentatively go to and it drops inside and they go oh that's amazing but uh, no it isn't you've just put a coin into a box is what i'm thinking but to them because they were convinced that the coin was too big it almost to them in their heads looked like a magic trick it looked like either the box had expanded in some weird way to allow the coin to drop in or maybe the coin reduced itself in size slightly so that it would fit in but either way to us it's not a magic trick but to a lot of the people that i perform for they to them it's a magic trick and then there's another example this happens quite regularly um in, in my ring and string routine um i'm just i take a, a length of cord and drop the ring onto the middle and show how putting it over the end of the string and tipping the the, the ring to the middle is how the ring would, you would normally put a ring onto a, onto a string and i then take it straight off and then i fold the string in half and say but i'm going to try something i'm going to try and put it on just using the middle now when i take it off i don't make a, a covert move of removing the the um the ring from the string i just let it drop off into my hand and i keep it just held in my fingers but it's not actually visible at this point as i'm folding the cord in half and i've noticed that quite often i'll see a spectator go oh where's the he's made, where's the ring gone he's made it disappear i'm getting credit for making it disappear when in fact all i did was take it off it's just that they didn't spot that and so for that spectator it's a magic trick it's not a magic trick to us but it kind of is to them it's like when you take a pack of cards out and you just do a do a fan say do the cards look like they're all there or take a card to us that is not a magic trick to some lay people the fact that you can spread cards in a perfect circle like that and none of the cards fall on the floor 
to them, that's a magic trick. They go, whoa, do that again. Bizarre, isn't it? So I just think that's interesting that uh, that things that we don't always associate as being magic tricks, the lay people are often getting more value out of our performances than we actually realise because they're seeing all sorts of things going on which were either unintentional on our part which were never intended to be to be magic tricks, but which, because of the way they're looking at it and with the limited knowledge they have of, of magic generally, to them it seems like it is a magic trick. Strange, isn't it? Last month in the podcast, I was um, announcing the launch in September of the Mark Leverage Magic Academy. And uh, at the moment, um, I'm sort of um, in the midst of doing preparations for the first one, which is on September the 12th. Um, the actual training room itself, which is in the grounds of, of uh, Mark Leverage Magic here, um, it's, um, it is actually a classroom. Um, and when where we lived here, originally we had a school and uh, it was one of the classrooms that we used. And um, at the moment, we're having some work done uh, in the room itself to um, change it and make it in, make it suitable for these um, sort of small group tuition uh, workshops and lectures. And um, I'm really excited about about this concept because um, I, I think there's no doubt in my mind anyway that that learning face to face with somebody um, is really the quickest way of getting to grips with with anything really that you want to learn and to have somewhere that's dedicated such as this um, MLM Academy just to that I think could be a benefit to to a lot of people. Um, Exeter is a very nice part of the country to travel to anyway I think Uh, and it's surprisingly close especially by train a couple of hours from Birmingham or London Um, and uh, it's easy to reach with the M5 um, by car. So um, Although it will take a little bit of effort for for people to actually come along, I think they're going to find that the four-hour sessions are really, really worthwhile. And there will be an accent on small group. These will be very low numbers, so it's almost like personal tuition from me, really. And there's going to be lots of different uh, topics. And the first one um, is called Brushing Up on Card Counts. Now, as I have often seen... There's a lot of confusion, I think, because there are so many small packet type counts. People get them either confused one to the other. So when they come to to read a description or see or or see some sort of routine that requires a particular um, count, they're not quite sure which one it is Uh, or they can't quite follow it from the uh, from the description or even from the video on occasions if it's not being properly put across. Um, and so I thought it would be interesting to to take um, at least four of these. And the four that I'm definitely going to do are the Elmsley, the Hammond, the Gemini and the Jordan counts. Um, those are all used in a lot of different tricks. So I'm going to teach those and people are going to get the cards in their hands. And if they're going to either, if they already can do them a bit, I'm going to get them up to a good speed so they look natural. And I'll be able to see individuals as they're doing it and hopefully help them to to improve it. And then after we've got those four counts up to speed, um, then I'll be doing um, three effects, which I'll be teaching, which everybody will learn during the day, which use some of those counts so that it's putting it immediately into practice. And so people will go away, not just with hopefully uh, improved or new skills, but also some routines using them. And I think this this type of thing uh, where you have a small group 
uh, it's really possible to to get into the the finer points of of making account look convincing. Things like timing, uh, and even perhaps a little misdirection, but certainly um, physical technique. So much easier face to face, and I think that the uh, the academy is going to help me to uh, to help a lot of people to to get really up to a stand that they would be happy with. So the first one is on the 12th of September. You can book uh, online on my website already for it. And uh, it gives you there are a couple of t- you can either have a standard or enhanced ticket. And it uh, is all fully explained as to uh, how much it is and what you get for it. And hopefully you'll come to one of the sessions in the near future. So Jamie Raven didn't quite win Britain's Got Talent. He came second made a tremendous fist of it and uh, garnered a huge amount of uh, publicity. Not all of it quite what he might have hoped for, but um, most of it pretty good. And I thought he did a brilliant job. Um, It's kind of galling, though, isn't it? I'm sure it must be for him that the the winning act was sort of uh, a dog. Well, dogs, actually. Um, And that the reason that, apart from the fact these dogs are highly, highly trained, of course... But it's the way that um, the public, if you like, are kind of suckered into. It's a bit like when you have um, cute kids singing or something. They get a disproportionate amount of credit because they're young and because they're children and so on. And it, and it kind of looks even more amazing because they are so young. And it's a bit like that with the dogs. That um, there's some the British anyway are obsessed with their dogs, and uh, so the act got a disproportionate amount of, of votes, I suspect, based on the on the emotional side of it all. And, and it's very hard for someone like a magician, even one who does as well as I thought Jamie did, to, to compete with that. But, you know, you sort of wonder, don't you, with these talent contests, are these things sort of set up and rigged? I mean, we, we know we've heard all sorts of stories, of course, that um, certain things are more predetermined than others, shall we say, and not as random or perhaps even as fair as they might be. But um, I have to say that I thought that in terms of um, a magician, Jamie did one of the best, uh, especially for a pattern magician, did one of the um, the best competition entries uh, for a very long time. And given that the, the judges are not always very... Um, kind towards the magicians they clearly thought he was brilliant and as I mentioned uh, I think in the last podcast last time I talked about him anyway uh, it's interesting that the magic that he was doing was to us as magicians relatively stand although he had some twists on it and uh, and he'd obviously put a lot of thought into it Um, but there was nothing that made the magician sit up and go oh wow never seen that before but how effective it was that despite being under huge pressure in front of the cameras and the, and the live audience and in front of the judges to to deliver something amazing, that the tricks themselves, you know, although they are not magically out of this world, they were very, very effective. And I thought he did, a, as I say, a brilliant job. And I'm hoping that for, for his sake, that he, because he's a really nice guy, Jamie, and I, I really hope that um, even though he came second, it will then, if, if, if he wants to go on and, and, and do more work on TV or elsewhere, that this will give him the leg up that he, that he really justifies and uh, would hopefully get from, from being in a, such a big, high-profile competition. 
Probably one of the most uh, common questions that uh, young or new magicians tend to ask, um, especially if they're just about to start getting involved with doing paid bookings, is uh, how much should I charge? And I was always always think that's a very difficult question to answer. It's hard enough knowing how much to charge for your own shows, never mind trying to give advice on what somebody else should charge. Because there are so many factors, aren't there, that need to come into it. What type of show is it? Who is it for, perhaps? Where is it? How much experience do you have? How keen are you to have the show? Um, because it's unless you actually publish your prices on a website or something, and I, I would suspect that nobody does that, then it's really, to a certain extent, a little bit of negotiation is going to go on. I always think that it's a good idea to know in your own head a scale of charges that you feel happy with. You know, you sort of kind of generate, I think, after a while, a sense of your own worth. What sort of fee am I happy to go out and perform for? And sometimes people sort out what that price is through pure mathematics. Okay, I need, if it's, especially if they're going semi-pro and they want to earn a certain amount of money every year to supplement their normal income, then they will work out, well, I'm going to do, let's say, 30 shows in a year. So how much money do I need to earn from those? Okay, that means I need to charge this amount for each show by doing a bit of simple maths. But um, there are a lot of other factors too. And, and when somebody contacts you, you... I certainly will look at the booking. And although I have a scale of charges, it it creates a starting point. I don't have absolute 100% fixed charges because there are occasions where, if, for instance, I have to travel a long distance to get to a booking, I need to charge a bit more, not just for the travelling expenses, but for the fact that uh, I'm on the road for longer. I'm out for longer. There are other things I can't be doing while I'm driving to and from the venue. But it's this, this sense of what you are actually worth what what is a a fee that you think is commensurate with your experience your ability Um, you can get a sense of this i suppose by trying to find out what other magicians who you feel you're roughly the same as in terms of quality and experience what are they charging maybe that'll give you a ballpark figure but i think in a way we're all very individual in the way that we perform so i've always felt that uh, you you need to have a, a, when you go out to do a show a figure in mind that you've charged you think i'm very happy to be working for this amount of money and not going out thinking oh i really under i really undersold this i really i'm really not charging enough for this it kind of sets up a feeling an inner feeling of resentment almost that you didn't do it right whereas if you're going out thinking yep this is the right fee i'm happy with this um i think you you have a much more uh, positive attitude to the booking generally But trying to advise somebody else is very difficult in many ways as to what to charge, isn't it? How much experience do they have? What sort of have you ever seen them? If they ask you the question, have you actually ever seen them work for lay people? Where are they in terms of their ability levels and in terms of how entertaining they are? How appropriate is their act for the audience they're hoping to go and entertain for? There are so many different things. But I certainly do think that, and, and this is something that, uh, this is a discussion I have with my wife quite a lot. She always feels that when somebody uh, makes an inquiry, that you should try to get that, that booking because almost not irrespective, but within reason. In other words, adjust the fee to what you think the person can afford. And I disagree with that completely and utterly because I think um, you should have a sense of value. What is the minimum fee you're prepared to go out for? 
So how do you value your time and your skills? And that that should be your starting point. And you shouldn't just drop it just because someone says, oh, uh, can you can you do me a better rate or um, do, do you do you can you give me a discount on that? Just for no reason other than the person's trying to get you to do it for less money. Now, I know, you know, there are situations where you you may be desperate for the income, in which case you may think, oh, no, something's better than nothing. But the trouble is it's a thin end of the wedge. And um, once you start doing that, where's your lower limit? And if people get to know that that's what you'll do, oh, yeah, just ring him up and just negotiate because he always drops down on price. means that you're going to be working harder and harder for less and less money, which I, personally I don't think is a great way to go. So uh, trying to assess uh, where your your sense of show value is, I think, is a really important thing. And the longer you've been doing it, the more you get to know what is about right. And of course, where you are geographically comes into it as well. The guys in, in London and some of the other major conurbations can probably charge a higher rate than people out in the country or in low um, sort of income areas where people just simply don't have the money. And where you would work, you would probably never work if you charge, try to charge what the guys in London can charge. So many factors, so many things to think about. It's a bit of a minefield, really, isn't it? In the uh, July issue of Magic Scene magazine, um, we're publishing um, what I think is a really interesting article called Self-Improvement, in which we asked four very experienced entertainers, namely Keith Fields, Matthew Dowden, Peter Clifford and Terry Herbert, to help us to look at ways that people can improve their performances and their acts. And what we did was we, we, we broke down a performance into a number of key elements. So we looked uh, in turn at the tricks themselves, at the presentation, how you put those tricks across, the patter, so if you're a patter act, what you actually say and how you develop good patter. Then we looked at the way you put an act together, and we finished by um, agreeing, I think, that collaboration with others, rather than trying to do everything yourself, is a really good thing. And um, the when I um, asked questions of our, our four experts uh, in order to see what their opinion were on various aspects of this, um, it was fascinating to see the, the depth of knowledge that these guys actually had and um, the amount of um, thought that they had clearly put into their own work with regard to these various elements. Because I think um, a lot of the time, um, particularly perhaps people who don't do a lot of shows, but who do the occasional show, the temptation is to concentrate on the tricks and the methods to achieve those tricks. I think a lot of magicians are very method-centric, so they, they look at a trick, right, you know, how's that done? And uh, can, can I do that trick? Can I technically do that? Forgetting that what the, the trick is going to make the trick effective when they perform it is, is things like the presentation, the patter. And if it's an act, how you it blends and becomes part of an overall uh, experience for the watching public. And and so this what this article sets out to do, and I, to be honest with you, I could have written almost written a book on it because they gave me so much information, but I had to crystallise it right the way down to the key elements. Um, if if you're interested in in, in helping yourself really um, to take elements of what you do and to improve it, I, I would recommend that you read the article. I think it's it's come out very well, and I'm very grateful to those guys for um, for giving such great information. I think that's one of the things that Magic Scene is very good at, even if I say so myself. It's it's taking a, a topic 
and and giving pertinent relevant and factual information to help people whether it's how to approach a table working in restaurants doing cabaret or being a comedy magician or or whatever it is um at some point we will have done articles on it and over the last 10 years uh, that magic scene's been in existence and i think it's um sometimes it's a really nice way because magic scene articles aren't very very long so it, it makes us more much look much more carefully at getting crystallizing things down to the real key elements that you need to know in order to get uh, your handle on a particular subject anyway so that's the, the uh, july issue of magic scene which is uh, is out right now well so now that we're into july the next uh, two or three months i guess especially for wedding magicians it's going to be a busy time since most uh, most weddings take place over the summer and um, also summer fairs outdoor events generally um, if you're taking part in any of those i trust that the rain will hold off and uh, everything will go swimmingly well for you I'd like to thank you for for listening to this podcast. I will be back next month with another range of things to chat about. And I hope in the meantime, you'll have a great month. Bye for now.